I want to begin today with a simple test. The two biggest holidays for Christians are A, Feast of Stephen, B, Christmas, C, Halloween, D, All Saints Day, E, Easter, F, July 4th, love the movie, G, Memorial Day, H, Mother's Day. The two biggest holidays for Christians are Good. Oh, at Christmas, we talk about Jesus' birth. There's the census. There's Herod. There's the wise men. There's the innkeeper. There's Bethlehem, Mary and Joseph. At Easter, we talk about Jesus' death. Palm Sunday, Hosanna, the Passover meal, Pilate, the trial, and the crucifixion, the soldiers, the stone. Did you know that Jesus spent three years as an itinerant preacher? Did you know that? Three years preaching and teaching. In the church, we tend to focus on his birth and then his death and resurrection, but there's all this stuff in between. Three years. Now, if you were to, if I were to ask you, what did Jesus teach on the most? If you were to just base it on what we pastors preach on, it would be stuff like money, marriage, having the best year ever, having the best kids ever, right? <laughs> These are the kinds of sermon series we American pastors tend to generate. But actually, if you, if you break it down, I, I went into the Gospel of Matthew, just one of the four Gospels, and by verses, topics that Jesus hit, coming in at number nine out of a top 10 list would be eternal life and salvation. What? Jesus? Number nine? Yes, number nine. Prayer, number eight. Persecution, number seven. Judgment in hell does a little bit better than eternal life and salvation coming in at number six. Predictions about the future, number five. Hypocrisy, number four. Some of you are like, yeah, come on, I'm gonna take you to work, Jesus. Second coming, return of Jesus, number three. Number two, the fate of Jerusalem and or people who reject Jesus. He had a lot to say about that. Coming in at number one, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Why did he spend so much time announcing the kingdom of God and talking about the kingdom of God? Shh. It's because he's a king. I know, it's because he's a king. That's why he spent so much time talking about this stuff. Now, I don't like this picture because in this picture, Jesus is a white Jesus, but I went on the internet and I just Googled, show me Jesus as a king, and all the pictures were white Jesuses. I'm sorry, but when we see Jesus, he's actually gonna be like Palestinian, Middle Eastern, and he's, you know, right? So just keep that in mind, but... If you could get the ethnicity right, the sentiment of this picture is spot on. Look at all the people. They're like, oh, there's the king. Ding, down on one knee, kind of a thing. Not just any king. In Isaiah, we quote this at Christmas all the time. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, the government will rest on his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. His government and peace will never end. The big kicker, his rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David, he will rule for all eternity. 
And then in Jeremiah, there's another pro uh, prophecy. For the time is coming, says the Lord, when I'll raise up a righteous descendant, he will be a king who rules with wisdom. He'll do what is just and right throughout the land. And then in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, we tend to quote this one on Palm Sunday. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He's righteous and victorious, but he's humble, coming on a donkey, not a horse. <laughs> okay? So all of this stuff here, this baby born in Bethlehem, is a king, which means that Jesus is political. Have you ever heard of a kingdom, a king without a kingdom? Now, I know some of you are like, great, you know, Max, thank you very much. I just got the election in the rearview mirror. In fact, I've unfriended and unfollowed a lot of my friends because all they did all throughout 2016 is Trump, 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 Clinton, 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 Trump, 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 no, libertarian, Trump, Trump, okay? And you're like, I'm sick and tired of this. I get it, but Jesus has big ramifications if he's a king. By the way, the winner in Jessamine County Schools of the Ugly Sweater Christmas Contest is this kid right here. He wants to make Christmas great again. <laughs> and you're like, no, yes. <laughs> That's our school district. So to say that Jesus is a king is to say something important. It means that Jesus in Christianity isn't something private. It's not just a matter of the heart. From time to time, I'll have people say to me, well, Max, that's just, you know, it's between me and the Lord. I'm like, have you not heard of the shepherds outside of Bethlehem? <laughs> like, that wasn't a kind of between them and the Lord thing. When I was a children's pastor, I had the privilege of working with cute, adorable kids and then kids that would cause you to pull your hair out. One of the adorable kids was a kid I'll call Don Jr., Don Jr. had chubby cheeks. He was a neat kid. He also had some, uh, he was angry. Like, you know, it was great to have Don Jr. in class. Like, he tracked, and I mean, he was always had an idea or an opinion he wanted to share. But he would just stand up, go to the wall, and hit the wall. And I'd be like, so finally, you know, I'm, I sit down, his mom and dad, and his dad, Don Sr., because if there's a Don Jr., there's a Don Sr. Don Sr. was like a successful doctor. Um, he came to church in this big, long black Mercedes, pulled up. I've never seen a Mercedes that long. I don't know what it is. It's like a limo Mercedes, always beautifully polished, always clean. Um, and people in church would refer to this family as they're just beautiful. That's a be such a beautiful family. And I, would, I sat down with Mrs. Don and Don Sr., and I was like, you know, Don Jr. keeps hitting the wall. Like, is there anything at home? Oh, no. Well, come to find out, later on, Don Sr. is hitting Mrs. Don and is hitting Don Jr. and swears like a sailor during the week. And the only time he's presentable and nice and kind is those few hours on Sunday morning. In other words, Don Sr. was a hypocrite. He was a Sunday Christian. He, you know, Monday through Saturday was one way. Sunday was another way. And with Jesus, it, it kind of, it doesn't work that way. Jesus is a king. It's not just spiritual things. You can't just say, well, you know, I do my God thing on Sundays, then I got my family thing, and then I got my work thing. It's, it's all connected. It's all related. And if Jesus is king, he's king of everything. Mary uh, 
has this in mind. When Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, and Mary's pregnant, and there's this, whoa, and the baby's leap in the womb, and they're like, what's going on? Mary sings this song. If you grew up Catholic, it's called the Magnificat, and you would sing it in Latin, maybe. Um, but Mary says, oh, how my soul praises the Lord, how my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He has brought down princes from their thrones. Little baby Jesus, meek and mild baby Jesus is bringing princes down from their thrones. You need to have this in mind. <laughs> baby Jesus is like Chuck Norris coming into the compound where all the drug dealers are, and in five minutes, 30 of them are dead. Bam, bringing down from your throne. That's what Mary is saying about little baby Jesus. This is important stuff to keep in mind at Christmas. But I want to let Jesus tell you, and, and I'm, we're going to be in one passage today, but I want you to understand where this passage is rooted. Um, it's in Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. That's the passage we're going to be in today. This passage takes place on a Tuesday, but not just any Tuesday. On Sunday, Jesus comes into Jerusalem on the donkey and everybody's throwing down their prom branches and their coats and they're like, Hosanna, we're so glad that here comes the king. On Monday, Jesus overturns the tables of the money changers. You have coins in your pocket. I hate to tell you this, but if you were a Jew in the first century, that's now made you unclean. You have touched something that has an image of the goddess of Rome of peace, Pax, and then on the other side, uh, something that's saying that Caesar is God, <gasps> you are unclean. So you would have to, if you had this money, you would have to, outside the temple, you'd have to change it for clean money so that you could use the clean money to buy the sacrifice that would appease God. And so that's what money changers did. And Jesus is, you know, going down on them and poof, throwing their tables and driving them out of the temple with a whip. And then Tuesday, he takes this question. During this same week, on Thursday, he celebrates the Passover meal, is arrested that night, and Friday is nailed to a cross. So that's when this particular question comes up. So I want to read you the first little bit. The Pharisees met together to plot how to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. They sent some of their disciples, along with the teach supporters of Herod, to meet with him. Teacher, they said... We know how honest you are. You teach the way of God truthfully. You're impartial, and you don't play favorites. Now tell us, tell us, what do you think? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, I want to give you a little background. One, because I'm a historian, and I'm a geek in history, so some of you are going to be like, help me, okay? But it's only going to last like three minutes. Hang with me. This is really important. In... Um, where is my, uh, there he is. There was a man named Judas Maccabees. Maccabeet is Hebrew for hammer or sledgehammer. In other words, this guy's name is Judas the Hammer. And he rode into Jerusalem to a king's welcome and cleansed the temple. Now, the reason he did that is because at the time, Judea was under the control of the Greeks, the Seleucids, and their ruler was a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes did not like Jews 
or Judaism. He thought it was a backwards religion, and he thought it would stop up the works of Hellenization of the Mediterranean Rim. So he decided to do some things. He went into the temple, took down all the gold, used it for his treasury. He ordered that the walls of Jerusalem be raised and the gates broken apart so the city was at his mercy. And then, because he didn't like Jews and he thought they, they should convert, he thought it would be a really good idea if he brought in an altar and a statue of Zeus into the Jewish temple. I don't know if you ever have wasps around your house. I had a wasp nest about this big. I mean, like 50 wasp nest. If you want to get rid of the wasp, you don't just hit that thing with a broom. You don't hit it with the broom. You want to know why? Because you're just going to make them mad. And that's what Antiochus Epiphanes did to the Jews of 160 BC. He just made them mad. And so they got together and they decided to revolt against the Seleucids and the Greeks. So this is Judas Maccabeus. By the way, your Jewish friends, they're celebrating Hanukkah. That's where this comes from. When they cleansed the temple and when they restored it back to service, there was a light that didn't go out and it was miraculous. And so they celebrate Hanukkah to this day. And that's rooted in Judas the hammer. A few years later, there, I don't have a picture of him because he never had any coins minted, so I had to use this Lego one. Judas the Galilean, <laughs> Judas the Galilean came around when Jesus was a kindergartner. So about the time Jesus was five or six years old, Judas the Galilean came in. He rode into Jerusalem to shouts of, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He cleansed the temple the next day, and then he told his followers, don't you dare pay that census tax. Don't obey Quirinius, and don't go to your ancestral homes. We're going to stick it to Rome. We're going to stand up together. United we stand against Roman oppressors. Let's hold hands and sing a song. Unfortunately, uh, Judas the Galilean and his uh, friend Thutis were caught by the Roman guards and publicly executed by crucifixion. But, but these things happened. The first one in 160 BC and this in 6 AD. So Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem to shouts of Hosanna. He's cleansed the temple. What's next? Revolution. Jason McKelly puts it this way. Hey, Jesus, what they're asking in this question is, are you a king or aren't you a king? Is the revolution on? Are we going to arm ourselves? So this is a very tricky question. So let's get into this passage, can we? So the Pharisees meet together how to plot him. And the the Pharisees send their disciples, so it's young men who aren't yet fully rabbis. And, he, and they send these guys into Jesus because they think, well, they're young, maybe Jesus will let his guard down and we can trap him. But they partner with the Herodians. This is nuts. The Pharisees are isolationists, little interpretation of the Bible. They reject Roman rule. The Herodians are cosmopolitans. Hey, religious tradition is good enough. They accept Roman rule. It's the equivalent of Nancy Pelosi grabbing the hand of Mitch McConnell and saying, together we can make a difference. This is crazy stuff. So they are working together to trap 
Jesus, and they're convinced they've got him. Because if Jesus says, yes, pay the tax, all of his followers are gonna abandon him because they're gonna realize there's no revolution. If he says, no, don't pay the tax, then they're just gonna go to Caesar and say, hey, he's inciting people not to pay taxes, which by the way is what got him crucified by the Romans, that accusation right there. So let's, let's go and look at the next several verses. But Jesus knew their evil motives. You hypocrites, he said. Why are you trying to trap me? Here, show me the coin used for the tax. When they handed him a Roman coin, he asked, whose picture and title are stamped on it? Now, you all should have a replica of a denarii, of a denarius in your hands. This is a denarius. On side one, it would read, Tiberius Caesar Divi Augustus. Caesar, son of divine Augustus. On the second side, it, this is the Roman goddess Pax, and it would say Maxim Pontifex, high priest. By the way, if you follow the Pope on Twitter, his Twitter handle is at Pontifex. <laughs> okay? So, so this coin was a tax on being alive, basically. If you were alive and sucking wind, you had to pay this tax. It was called a head tax or a poll tax. If you ever read about a poll tax in the Bible, it has nothing to do with voting or polling booths. It's a tax because you're around. So if you were living and sucking wind, you had to pay this tax to Caesar. And in, in, it would have been the equivalent of a day's wage for somebody picking olives in one of the olive groves. Today, it would be somebody working at a fast food restaurant here in Jesmond County. So we're talking about $60 in today's U.S. currency. It's not a lot, but it's something. And so this coin, by the way, is the one that got Judas the Galilean all upset in that revolt in A.D. 6. So Jesus asks them, show me the coin. Do you know where Jesus is? He's in the temple. The people who are trying to trap him reach into their pockets, and what do they pull out? How do you have this despicable thing in your purses in the holy temple of God with the image of the goddess of peace and then something claiming that Caesar is God and you brought it into the temple and you're touching it and you're asking me this question? Hypocrites. I never saw this until I started researching the culture of the first century. I never realized that there was this double entendre thing playing out with Jesus and the God squad. And the fact that they got, oh, yeah, sure, Jesus got one right here. What do you mean? You got one right there? You hypocrites? It gets better. The Romans knew how particular the Jews were about this, so they had special copper coins minted in a place called Lystra that the Jews could use in and around Jerusalem. There was no need to have a denarius in your pocket. You didn't need it to do business anywhere in and around Jerusalem. And yet, it's in their pockets. Hypocrisy. Okay, look, I'll, I'll tell on somebody from my own tradition. Uh, uh, so evangelicals have been vocal this last election, and there was one particular uh, evangelical who was very passionate about who you should vote for and and calling out how you should take a stand against abortion and all this stuff. 
this same guy had his book destroyed by his publisher because he plagiarized so much of it from another book. And then had to withdraw from the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability because of the stuff that's in his home that came from ministry dollars. And yet, he raises tens of million dollars a year. So, like, in my opinion, right, what's going on is the whole, you got that in your purse and you're pointing the finger? What? <laughs> kind of a moment. So, let's keep going with this, all right? They handed him a Roman coin. I, I just, I can't believe this actually happened. So, Jesus is like, well, whose inscription, whose image is on the coin? Caesar's, verse 21, they reply. Well, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. Now, a lot of times we read this with our American way of thinking and we do the Thomas Jefferson separation of church and state. There's the God sphere and the state sphere and they're kind of separate but equal and we do God stuff over here and then we do America stuff or government stuff over here and you know they're kind of, no, 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 no. There's a word used for give. So when the Pharisees ask him this question, uh, Jesus, is it right to give tax to Caesar? It's didomai. It means to present a gift. When Jesus answers their question, he uses a different word for give, apodote, which means to pay back. Judas Maccabeus's father told him in that revolt, I want you to apodote the Gentiles. I want you to pay back the Gentiles. Jesus uses that word, right? That's the word we have in the text. Again, we want to compartmentalize this. There's the work me, the home me, the church me, and have equal spheres for God, Caesar, family, all this stuff, but Jesus is in a sense saying, no, 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 there's no Herodians, Pharisees, there's no two-party system. There's, what do you give a tyrant? What does a tyrant deserve? It's his roads, it's his army, give him his money. What does God deserve? Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. God deserves everything. Okay? Abraham Kuyper puts it this way. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Little baby Jesus. When he looks at your life, when he looks at what you have, when he looks at my life, do you know what Jesus thinks? Mine. I made it. I made you. I came to the planet. I died for you. Mine. Are you kind of feeling this yet? So let me ask some questions. Do you, do you tend to compartmentalize your faith? Is it like one thing, one box among many boxes? So like I do my God thing on Tuesdays with the guys and then I play basketball on Wednesdays and then maybe I do work stuff spread throughout there. Is it all kind of separate but equal? Or is it all connected? And then secondly, could you be rightly accused of being a subject of Jesus? If someone were to investigate your life, could they pin the charge on you? Yep, Jesus is their king. Look at how, what they're doing. Nananana boo-boo, caught you red-handed. 
whose kingdom do you work most aggressively to advance? So if you're a teenager, it's this simple. Jesus leads, you follow. Life isn't necessarily about every, it isn't necessarily about you, what you want, what you got or didn't get. There are these other teenagers around you that actually God wants to experience his kingdom and yield to his rule. And he wants to use you to be part of that. If you're an adult, through all the gifts and the parties and the meals and the preparation and all the stuff that goes into Christmas, whose image are you bearing when you do those things, right? Jesus asks the question, whose icon, whose image is on the coin? Well, in all these various areas where you are, what's the image that's coming out? Jesus, Caesar, whose image is is coming out on that coin? Look, Christmas is about the arrival of the king, Emmanuel, God with us. Here's one practical thing I would urge you to do this Christmas. Unplug! Unplug! God didn't send a YouTube video. (laughs) He became one of us. He didn't send a link. He didn't text you an invite. He came and was one of us. And so we could take the image of God with us and the image of Jesus with us when we're fully present with each other. Maybe this Christmas in your family, that means a ban on technological devices when you're at the table. Or I don't know what it means, but you'll figure it out. You're smart people, right? The other thing about this is that Jesus' kingdom is better. I'm going to tell you this straight up. It's better. In Jesus' kingdom, debts are forgiven, grace is offered, enemies are prayed for, peace is embodied, and money is not our master. Is this sounding appealing to you? Jesus' kingdom is better. And the gospel writers want us to see something very important about Jesus. Caesar represented the power of Rome, the power of this world. Caesar and his client, King Herod, tried to snuff out Jesus' life as a baby and failed. When Jesus dies and is buried in the tomb, agents of Caesar send Roman guards to guard the tomb. Gang, they couldn't keep him in there. They couldn't keep him in there. Caesar and his power is impotent in the face of the one true king. Paul uh, talks about this at the end of the book of Acts. There's this phrase, um, Paul was in Rome with all boldness and with no one stopping him. Even members of Caesar's household had converted. And the, the writers of the New Testament are wanting us to see, yep, Jesus is king. It's not Caesar. It may look like Caesar. It may feel like Caesar. Nope. The real king is Jesus. So imagine for a moment What would your work look like if Jesus was really king? If his kingdom values permeated what went on? You'd be like, oh, some of the crap that goes on wouldn't be happening. Ding. (laughs) Ding, 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 ding. What would your home look like if Jesus were king? What would the church in America look like if Jesus were king? It would be awesome. So that little baby born in Bethlehem, sweet six-pound, four-ounce little baby Jesus, 
That baby is king. And I hope this Christmas, I hope this Christmas, you can carry this denarius around with you in your pocket as a reminder, Jesus or Caesar, I hope you'll let Jesus be your king.